Well, it is Christmas, folks, and uh, that means that you are going to get at least one gift this year that you open up and you go, wow, thanks. Right? You know what I'm talking about. You know, it's that, it's that sweater that you open up from Grandma and you go, ooh, Grandma, you shouldn't have a horse on the front of it. Wow. Or, or, you know, I, I got this one year, I got this, uh, some people think that I, I, I want, you know, ties because I'm a, I'm a preacher. So they get me all these funny Christmas ties. So I, I, have, I have the Grinch tie and I have a Charlie Brown, you know, and the list goes on and on how many Christmas ties I have. It, it's hard, isn't it, when you open up a gift and you have to feign a reaction isn't it difficult? I mean, you open up the gift and you're not sure already because you know who's given it to you and you think, well, last year they kind of, you know, they kind of went in this direction and you're opening up and you're kind of looking in the box like, what? Oh, hey! Nice. I don't even know what it is, but... It's hard to feign gratefulness, isn't it? It's hard to feign a response at Christmas time when you open up something and you look at it and you think, I will never use this ever. In fact, my wife has a story. She was at uh, our little Baptist church that I was a youth pastor at and they wanted to throw her a wedding shower. And uh, so they, we, were, we were about to get married and they threw us a wedding shower and uh, this nice little lady in the church, God bless her heart, she wrapped up what we believe was a old used soap dish. And my wife is opening up the package and she's kind of peeking in the box and she pulls it out and she goes, it's beautiful. It took a lot you know, for my wife to get through that moment. But feigning surprise, it's hard. It's difficult to do. And yet, we know that that's the proper thing to do. We had some friends over for... For, uh, for dinner not too long ago, and I won't name who, who it was, but apparently they were teaching their, their child to be grateful for everything. They were teaching their child, no matter what it is, no matter what you're served on the plate, no matter what, the, what Neil and Casey cook for you tonight, I want you to be excited about it. So the young boy, he comes in the house and he walks up and he's looking at the food on the table and he goes, Oh, Miss Casey, I really like that fruit, but all the other fruits, well... And then he looked at his mom, and his mom goes, he goes, I really like those too. <laughs> Any family want to claim that boy? Feigning a reaction is hard. It's difficult to push a response around Christmas time. Today, though, in our study in Romans, we are going to look at a reaction that is required. We are going to look, much like a Christmas gift, when you open it up from Grandma, no matter what it is, you have to say, I love it, right? In the same way, we are going to look in Romans 2, we are going to consider a response that is absolutely required. If you don't respond in this way, Paul's going to say, You've got a big problem on your hands. The title of my message today is part four in our series of messages. It's different than what you have in the bulletin because I changed it over the weekend. We're continuing the series called Without Excuse. And the title of my message is A Righteous Response is Required. 
A righteous response is required. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background in case you're picking up where we left off in Romans. You can't quite remember where we're at. Four things I want you to keep in mind about this, this book. Number one, God has given all people a knowledge of Him. Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 1. In fact, that's one of the driving statements of Romans 1. God has given to all people a knowledge of Him. Number two, but mankind has suppressed that knowledge. Mankind has suppressed that knowledge. That leads to number three. Therefore, God's judgment is coming. We see that in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. We looked at that a while back. And number four, God will be an impartial judge and He will listen to the evidence mankind brings, that is, good works, to justify themselves before Him. Paul is making the point, it's kind of a peculiar one, but you'll see why he does it. He says, look, God's going to be fair. Whatever evidence you want to bring to Him on the last day, He'll listen to. He'll listen to the evidence. You want to bring your works? He'll listen to the evidence. You want to bring whatever? He'll listen to what you have to say at the judgment day. Now, as Paul continues his teaching, though, in chapter 2, verse 12, he wants to drive home the idea that mankind is responsible for his knowledge of God however great or however small that knowledge might be. Mankind is responsible to act righteously in accordance with that knowledge. There are no excuses. Everyone knows at least some things about God. And God will judge them in accordance with the knowledge given them. He will be fair. Now, there were some in Paul's day who were suggesting that the Gentiles... Those non-Jews who did not know Moses' law, Paul, Paul, uh, some were suggesting that, that, that those people might somehow be exempt from God's judgment because they didn't know the law. They didn't know the law of Moses, so how can God judge them? Paul's going to dismiss that idea out of hand in our text today. He says, oh, no, no, God is still fair. And then there were others in Paul's day who were suggesting that the Jewish people who were aware of God's law were somehow automatically innocent because of their Jewish ancestry and heritage. Paul's also going to dismiss this suggestion out of hand. In the end, Paul's going to say this. You, me, Jews, Gentiles, all peoples are responsible for the knowledge of God afforded to you. Responsible to act righteously, in keeping with God's laws, all will face judgment if we act carelessly with that knowledge. So again, the title of my message is, A Righteous Response is Required. It's required. We'll get to what that means for us as we go through this part of Romans 2. So turn to Romans 2. We're going to begin in verse 12 today. Romans 2, verse 12. We're not going to read all of it at once, so we're going to go uh, verse by verse here. So beginning in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 12, Paul says this. He says, For as many as have sinned without law, the Gentiles, will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law, the Jews, 
will be judged by the law. Now, I've included Gentiles and Jews just as explanatory comments. I don't mean that uh, we don't want to add to the Word of God here, but it just helps us explain what, who it is that, God, that, that Paul is speaking of here. Those who have sinned without law are, are the Gentiles. Paul says they're going to perish without law if they've sinned. And as many as have sinned in the law, the Jews, they'll be judged by the law as well. Now, right here, right from the get-go, Paul anticipates that some of his readers are going to cry foul. They're going to read this statement from Paul and they're going to say, Paul, how is it that God is impartial if He judges those who have never known the law of Moses? How is that impartial? They didn't even know God's law. How can He judge them? Have you heard that today? We hear it in our own day in a different way, don't we? We hear the phrase, we hear the question maybe, how is God just in judging people in, in remote parts of Africa or, or remote parts of Asia or the South Pacific who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ? How is He just in judging them? They've never heard. Never heard Jesus. 2,000 years ago, they would have said they'd never heard the law. That's not fair, these people suggest. But Paul says, not so fast. Remember what I've been saying all along. In chapter 1, Paul made the comment time and time and time and time again that God has given all people a knowledge of Him. God has given all people a knowledge of Him. Not one person is born without a recognition that God exists and that there will one day be judgment. Read chapter 1, verse 32. All people will recognize, at some point in their life, they are born with, they carry on, and they either accept or suppress the truth that God exists and that they will be held accountable to Him. And with that knowledge comes what Paul says is responsibility. When you have knowledge of something, you can no longer claim innocence or naivete. When you have knowledge of something, you have to make a decision. Either you're going to act on that knowledge in this way, or you're going to do it in this way. You've got to make a choice when you have knowledge of something. You're responsible for your knowledge. Case in point, I want to bring up a picture here. This gal to, my, to the left... Her name is Abby Johnson. How many of you know who this gal is? Just a couple of you. This gal, Abby Johnson, uh, she was for many years uh, a woman who, she lived in uh, the city of Bryan, Texas, and she worked for many years for an organization called Planned Parenthood. Among other things, that organization uh, assists in uh, carrying out abortion procedures. It's one of the things that, that this organization does. And this woman previously was pro-choice. She had worked for Planned Parenthood for a number of years. And one day, as she's walking into the office, she came into a particular room where the ultrasound monitor was on from a doctor performing an abortion procedure in an adjoining room. And as she walked in and she saw the monitor, she watched in horror as she witnessed for the first time in her life a live abortion. For the first time in her life, she had this knowledge of 
what actually happens when an abortion takes place. And she watched in horror this procedure. And a woman who had worked there many years, been pro-choice most of her life, walked away from that experience, changed. She left Planned Parenthood. She reached out to pro-life organizations, which is the, the, one of the men she's uh, uh, standing by there is, is a man from a pro, pro-life organization. The reaction that Abby Johnson had to the abortion procedure that she witnessed on the ultrasound was instinctual. She saw evil. And she recognized it as evil. And she fled from it. I submit to you that that instinct that Abby had was God-given. Just as it's God-given to each human being. She didn't need a book to tell her what she was seeing on the screen was wrong. Paul says, the same is true. The same is true for Gentiles who don't know the formal written Mosaic Law. The same is true for those in Africa and Asia and the South Pacific and around the world who have never heard the name of Christ. Skip down to verse 14 for just a moment. Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these Gentiles, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. What's Paul mean? Essentially, he means, look, everyone knows right and wrong. You don't need the law, the Mosaic Law, to tell you what's right and wrong. You don't need a book to tell you what's right and wrong. God has imprinted these qualities on every human heart. And so the argument that the Gentiles should somehow be exempt from God's judgment on the basis that they did not know the law of Moses is baseless. Gentiles do know of a law. It's not Moses' law. It's an innate law within their hearts. A conscience that bears witness of what is right and what is wrong. And they think about their morality. Did you catch the part about the thoughts? They think about their morality. They're constantly making choices and decisions and they're thinking in their conscience, they're thinking in their head, oh, that was, okay, that was good, that was right what I did. And then, oh well, I know what I did was wrong here. Not having the law of Moses, they're having these thought processes. When they do evil, their thoughts accuse and haunt them. When they do good, their thoughts excuse them. Gentiles are held accountable. They have a knowledge of God, and with knowledge comes the responsibility to act righteously. You say, well, now wait a minute though, Neil. Uh, But again, they've never heard. They've never heard the Gospel. They've never heard the message of Christ. So how how can they be held accountable for that? My, My response is this. My response is to say, all people are held accountable for the knowledge that they have. 
And if I don't think that it is coincidence that missionaries are sent to indigenous tribes in the order that they are. I don't think it's coincidence that that the Gospel of Christ reaches a remote part for the first time here and only comes over here maybe 10, 20, 30 years later. Based on what the text is telling me, if we are responsible with the knowledge that God has afforded to us, if someone who doesn't know the Gospel is nevertheless seeking the one true God, if they're looking up and they're saying, what my, what my tribe is worshiping is wrong, and I'm looking and I'm seeking the one true God, I would like to think, according to James 4.8, that when you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. I would like to think, according to Matthew chapter 5, that when you ask, when you seek, when you knock, the door will be opened. Now, I can't prove that. I can't prove without a shadow of a doubt that the reason an indigenous tribe has never heard the Gospel is because no one in that tribe is earnestly seeking God. I can't prove that. But based on what the Scriptures have to say about those who call out and genuinely and earnestly seek God, I believe that God will respond to that. And so there is no excuse for those who have never heard the Gospel. There is no excuse for those who have never heard the law. Because according to the Scriptures, if they were seeking God, if they were responsible with the knowledge afforded to them, according to James 4, 8 and Matthew 5, God would come to them. He would visit them. He would reveal more truth to them that they might know more, that they might use that responsibly and ultimately that they might be saved. Now, this was a little, little bit of a, of a rabbit trail. And, and the things that I've said about indigenous tribes, they cannot be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. We can have disagreements here. But again, to be clear, all are responsible for the knowledge that they have. If they don't act on that knowledge, they're accountable. If they do act on that knowledge, earnestly seeking the one true God, I believe our God is loving and gracious to send to them more knowledge that they might be saved. Let's move on. Now, we've been talking about Gentiles, those who have not known the law. But now Paul turns his attention to the Jews, to those who do have the law to those who have had the privilege of knowing the truth of God according to the Mosaic law. Now, now look again at verses, verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13, it says this, For as many as have sinned without the law, the Gentiles, will also perish without law. And as many, here he turns his attention to the Jews, and as many as have sinned in the law will also be judged by the law. Why? For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So now Paul turns his attention to the Jew. He says, look, it's not merely enough to hear the law. It's not enough to merely have knowledge of God's law. With knowledge comes responsibility to act righteously. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
Now, wait a minute. Isn't salvation by grace through faith in Christ? Why then is Paul talking in verse 13 about becoming justified by doing the law? How does this reconcile with the rest of Romans? How does this reconcile with the rest of the Scriptures? What does Paul mean here? Are are there two ways to, to be saved? Believe it or not, this is not the first time in Romans that Paul has suggested that the doers of the law can be justified. He said it also in chapter 2, verse 7, if you want to look back there. In fact, as Douglas Moo points out, a, a wonderful New Testament scholar, he says it very plainly. He says this. He says, Paul agreed with the Jewish belief that justification could, in theory, be secured through works. Where Paul disagreed with Judaism was in his belief that the power of sin prevents any person from actually achieving justification in this manner. Believe it or not, Jesus agreed with these words. If you read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28, you'll hear Jesus dialoguing with the lawyer. And the lawyer asks, how can I, uh, how can I uh, inherit eternal life? How can I be saved? And Jesus responds to him and says, well, what's in the law? And the man responds with what's in the law. And Jesus says, you're right. If you do those things, you will live. Really? Yeah. Complete the law, do the law, fulfill the law, and you will live. It's a glorious salvation program. I know everybody wants to sign up for it. Do the law and you will live. Is that true? Yes. Is it possible? No. That's the point. That's Paul's point. That's Jesus' point. That's exactly what's going on here in Romans. Jesus and Paul spoke of salvation by means of perfect obedience to the law so that they could get their audience to point and say, but I can't do that. I can't accomplish that. And Jesus and Paul say, bingo. That's right. You can't accomplish that. Once a person realizes they aren't good enough, to justify themselves, that's when their heart is ready to receive Jesus Christ by faith. Do you think you're good enough? Are you coming to this place as we begin the season of Advent? Are you walking through these doors thinking in your mind, I'm good enough. On the last day, I'll I'll present my good works to God and, and I'll say, well, see, look at all the good things I did. They outweigh the bad things that I did, so doesn't that count for something? According to the Bible, it'll, it'll be... No, it doesn't. Do the law perfectly, and you will live. Transgress it once, and you will be, in, you will be held in judgment. I can't do that. Right. That's why you need another kind of righteousness. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes by faith in Him. Friends, don't, uh, don't ever suppose that our righteousness is good enough to get us into heaven. It's not. You need a righteousness that is not your own. You need the righteousness of Christ. 
And you get that by believing in Jesus for everlasting life. There is coming a day when God will judge. Verse 12 again, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And then all the way down to verse 16, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. If you look carefully, carefully at verses 13 to 15, you'll notice they're in parentheses. Uh, that's not by mistake here. The translators have made a very good judgment call, in my opinion. Uh, they've recognized that verse 16 completes the thought of verse 12. And so you're to read them uh, in, in sequential order there. Verse 16 completes the thought of verse 12. And everything in between is, is, is good biblical truth. It's an, it's an excursus. But Paul is saying, look, the day's coming. Are you going to put works before the throne when you face the judgment seat of God? Are you going to put your good works up there or are you going to put the righteousness of Christ up there? Because God's going to judge even the secret things. Now, Paul's focus on the Jew is far from over. For too long his countrymen have assumed that their ethnic heritage and, and uh their, their, the, the rights of circumcision and the law and other things have given them some sort of an automatic in with God. For too long they've supposed that God would never judge them, but instead would appoint them as judges over the rest of the world. Take a look at verse 17 and following. We'll, we'll read a little bit here. Verse 17 says this, Indeed, you who are called a Jew, you who rest on the law, You who make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, you Jews, therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Now notice in red the emphasis on knowledge. We've been talking this morning about you have a responsibility with the knowledge given to you. All people do. You are responsible for the knowledge given to you. And notice the emphasis on knowledge. The Jews know God's will. They've been instructed in the law. They're considered guides. They're considered instructors. They're considered teachers. They have a form of knowledge and truth. They're teachers. They're preachers. They have knowledge. They have this privilege. They have this special blessing from God. An exorbitant amount of knowledge about the one true God. If ever there was a group who were given a bountiful amount of information about God and His law, the Jews were that group. But as we've been saying, with knowledge comes responsibility to act righteously. And righteousness was a rare commodity in first century Israel. Notice verse 21. If you're going to teach, you should teach yourself. If you're going to preach that a man shouldn't steal, stop stealing. If you're going to say don't commit adultery, stop 
committing adultery. And, and so on and so forth. Rather than leading foreigners to salvation as Israel was supposed to do, the Jewish people had actually embraced the wickedness of their culture. Practice what you preach, Paul says. Don't just hear the law. Do it. Stop stealing. Stop having affairs. Stop breaking God's law. Paul is implying that even one transgression violates the law. Now what about that phrase, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That one in red there. That's kind of a a peculiar one. just want to touch it briefly. Um, You'll notice everything's a contrast here, right? Um, Prior to that, we see, uh, just, just prior to that statement, uh, Paul's saying, hey, if you're going to, if you're going to say don't steal, don't steal. If you're going to say don't commit adultery, don't commit adultery. If you're going to say you hate idolatry, don't rob temples. Wait, what? How is that a contrast? Sounds a little bit odd, doesn't it? Uh, it is one that kind of troubles some uh, troubles scholars, and it's it's not a there's not a foolproof answer to this one. But the best that, that I can gather from this, and that I think biblical research has gathered, is Paul probably means that there are some Jews who pay no attention to the biblical admonitions against using pagan idols. Such idols were routinely stolen from pagan temples in the first century, and they were stolen and sold on street corners or melted down and sold as jewelry. Now, the Jews, like all peoples of, of that day, were not so, well, the Jews were not so much responsible for physically stealing these idols as much as they were responsible for knowingly participating in purchasing these stolen goods. They knowingly participated. They, they walked along street corners and knowing that these idols had been stolen, pilfered, knowing this jewelry had been, had been melted down and created from uh, idols, they purchased them. They embraced them. They put them in their homes. They wore them on their necks. And Paul essentially is saying, while you claim to hate idols, you actually buy these things for personal leisure robbing pagan temples to get them. Unbelievable. Paul says, because of all these things, verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And here's an allusion to probably Ezekiel chapter 36. The Old Testament, uh, it's interesting, because the Old Testament generally taught that it was the Gentiles who were profaning the name of God. That it was the Gentile peoples, those, those non-Jews, who were ruining and mocking and profaning, blaspheming God's name. And here, Paul knowingly reverses that truth. While in former times it was the Gentiles who blasphemed the name of God, now Paul says it's you. You who know God. You who have the law. You who have more knowledge than anyone. Oh, what an irresponsible use of knowledge. To know God, to know His law, to know His will, 
and to act in ways that would cause other people to curse the God you worship. That happens today. Oh, don't assume it doesn't. You know, you, the, media just, the media just jumps on it. Anytime a Christian uh, has an affair, the media jumps on it. See? Christians are no better than the rest. Profaning the name of God. Anytime a Christian does something wrong or immoral, you know what? It happens. We're sinners. But every time we do, every time we act irresponsibly with the knowledge given to us, every time we sin, the world looks at us and says, why would I bother following you? So it reminds us to be humble. It reminds us to ask God for help. It reminds us to say, Lord, I I cannot do this on my own. I cannot represent you perfectly. I cannot live life without sin. I need you. I need your help. I need your grace. Do people profane the name of God because of your conduct? You'll be held responsible for that. Up until this point now, Paul has been referring to the Mosaic Law. He has reminded his countrymen that simply possessing the law by birthright is not sufficient to protect you from God's judgment or His wrath. But there remains one one final issue. We're going to look at one final section here. One final issue that the Jewish people have pointed to and said, but what about this part? Okay, not the law, but what about this? Come on, at least this should protect us from the coming judgment. And what am I speaking of? I'm speaking of the rite of circumcision. It's an odd one. We think, why would they think that? But in, in biblical times, the Jews genuinely believed that the rite of circumcision protected them, marked them out as God's people, and protected them from God's coming judgment. In fact, there are rabbis in the, the Mishnah that writes, if you are a circumcised individual, you will not face the wrath of God. These comments are written in some of the Jewish commentaries on the Scriptures. And this is what Paul says to that in chapter 2, verse 25. He says, look, circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Just as possessing the law is no guarantee of future salvation... So also circumcision in and of itself is no guarantee of right standing before God. Keeping the law, doing the law is what matters. Obedience is important, Paul says. If you fail to obey, God will render judgment upon you. We might compare this to baptism today. Just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you take communion this morning doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you're circumcised, the list goes on and on. It's not those things. It's not those external things. First, Paul says, you've got to have perfect obedience. And as we realize, but we can't do that, he's going to offer a second alternative in just a few moments. If this teaching wasn't revolutionary enough, Paul goes on to say in verse 26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, if he does the law, judge you, Jews, 
who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? This is a a radical point of, of the Apostle Paul. If an uncircumcised Gentile, Paul says, if he obeys the law, God will consider such a person to be in effect circumcised. That is to say that God will give to such a person the privileges and status once given only to the Jewish people. But that's not all. Verse 27 indicates that obedience is so much more important than circumcision that if an uncircumcised person fulfills the law, does the law, they will actually judge the Israelites who even with their written law and sign of circumcision have by their conduct violated God's law. While we may not feel that that statement is so dramatic, I can assure you it blew the minds of those who heard it in the first century. Gentiles? Judging Israel? Are you kidding? The Old Testament, it's, it's, it's Israel judging the Gentiles. Not the other way around. You shouldn't be so surprised, Paul says, for the Lord has always valued a contrite heart over showy displays of piety. He has always valued mercy more than sacrifice. He has always been after our inner person, not our appearance. And so he concludes in verse 28 and 29. For he, notice this, this is, uh, here's the clincher for Paul. For he is not a Jew who is one in, uh, outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Here we go. For the first time. For the first time since beginning his discussion on the universal sinfulness of mankind. For the first time since chapter 1, verse 17, Paul is suggesting a way out. He says there is hope for reconciliation with God. But this hope is not achieved by phony acts of holiness. It's not achieved by knowing the law or by being circumcised. You cannot find this hope in the physical world. It doesn't come through baptism. It doesn't come through communion. It doesn't come through good works. No, this hope is only found inwardly. It is found when you open up your heart to the Spirit of God and let the Spirit circumcise your heart. When you open your heart to the Spirit of God and let the Spirit Cut away the darkness. Cut away the wickedness. Cut away the sin and the evil. It is only by the Spirit, Paul says, not the letter of the law, that you can be made right with God. Now Paul doesn't go into great detail here. And he doesn't have to. Because he'll do so quite adequately in just about 20 more verses from here. 
But for now, he wants his readers to be left with the impression that change, real transformation, only comes by means of the Spirit of God. He wants you and I to be left with the impression that reconciliation, true forgiveness, only comes by means of the Spirit of God. And we are left hanging here in Romans, waiting to hear more about this glorious message, which He will soon give us in chapter 3. Just some closing thoughts um, as, we, as we... What do we learn today? What, what, what do we take with us? I want to I offer you this. In Paul's day, similar to our day, people generally believed God would judge them based on their works. Jews believed themselves to have good works by virtue of their possessing the law and circumcision. And Gentiles, they sought to perform more good works than bad ones to gain the favor of the deity, whoever that was. And while it is true that God will judge people based on their works, that is a true statement. God's standards of judgment are much higher than many realize. Jews are not rendered innocent by their ethnicity or heritage as God's people. And no one avoids judgment because their good works outweigh the bad. God will judge by works. And He will require a perfectly righteous response. Flawless obedience to the law. Here's what I want to leave you with. When people grasp this truth about the final judgment... They come to realize that doing the law is impossible. It's not attainable. And fewer truths are more important than this one. Fewer truths. For with this truth comes a heart that is ready and open to receive a righteousness that is not their own, one that comes only by faith in the perfectly righteous one, Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul leaves us hanging. He leaves us hanging intentionally, thinking in the end we'll be judged by our works. And our works aren't good enough. He leaves us thinking, what do we do? If our works won't measure up on that last day, what will we do? And God says, don't worry. I'll send My Son, Jesus. I'll send Him to Bethlehem. He'll be born through the Virgin Mary. He'll grow up. He'll reflect My glory. He'll reflect My truth. He'll share with the world how to get out of their predicament. And He will die on the cross. And He will rise again. And all those who believe His message on that last day will not be judged on their works. They'll be judged on the work of Christ in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord,
Far be it from us to ever wish that You would judge our eternal destiny based on our works. Lord, we don't add up. We don't measure up. And we never will. But God, You're good to us. And Your goodness is expressed in the sending of Your Son. The Son we celebrate this season of the year. Thank You, Father, for sending us the solution to our predicament. I pray, Lord, that no one in this room would leave not having come to know Christ in faith. To know that their sins are forgiven. That on the last day, you will look at them and see Christ. That you will look at us and see Christ and see His life in us. And that you might open up the door to the kingdom and say, welcome. Come on in. Enjoy the kingdom forever. Lord, we look forward to that day. Hasten that day, Father. We anticipate that time when we will be with You forever, not because we had our own works, but because we relied on the work of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.